day before yesterday, I featured a great article from Red Flag, an Australian publication. Here's another called Socialists Should Not Vote for Joe Biden by Omar Hassan from the 8th of October. As the U.S. presidential election draws nearer, the pressure to fall in behind Joe Biden grows ever greater. Predictably, most of the social democratic and liberal left are promoting the former vice president, even if some remain squeamish about formally endorsing him. More surprising has been the unprecedented step taken by a number of respected socialists, most notably Dan Labatt's, to advocate voting for a man who called on police to shoot Black Lives Matter demonstrators in the leg. In almost every case, the rationale is the same. Donald Trump is a unique threat and must be stopped at all costs. In a despairing article for New Politics, Labatz raises the specter of a Trump coup and dictatorship as a reason to vote for Biden. Labatz is far from alone in emphasizing the danger that Trump, with his undeniable affinity with the far right, poses to U.S. democracy. Here's a quote from Max Elbaum. The central polarization in the country today is between a Trumpist bloc driving toward authoritarian rule versus a majority opposition that, for all the vacillations and differences within it, is defending the democratic space that movements for justice, peace, and radical change require to advance, former Maoist Max Elbaum writes at organizingupgrade.com. The 2020 election will determine which force will hold governing power. Reasonable people can disagree about whether Trump is a fascist, but it is ludicrous to think that a fascist coup or fascist government is on the cards in the United States. Arrayed against Trump are substantial sections of the state machinery, most important of which are the military generals and large sections of the capitalist class. There is simply no need or appetite for a dictatorship among the U.S. ruling elite. They are getting fantastically wealthy and face no internal threat to their rule. While far-right sentiments are clearly growing among sections of the Republican base, their organizations are weaker than at most other times in U.S. history. Almost every major attempt by the far-right to mobilize in recent times has been dwarfed by BLM rallies or counter-demonstrations organized by anti-fascists. It is accurate to say that Trump is giving confidence to the far right with his rambling bigotry, and it is undoubtedly true that Trump is trying his best to steal the election using all means at his disposal. This is hardly a new development in U.S. politics. But we should be clear about what the current slightly hysterical establishment campaign against Trump represents. Uniting billionaire bigots such as Mike Bloomberg, hack Republicans such as Anthony Scaramucci, neoconservative national security state war hawks and upper middle class suburbanites, the so-called Never Trump movement, is not a genuine defense of democracy or the rights of black voters, women, migrants, and workers. Rather, they want Trump out because he endangers their imperial alliances and the legitimacy and credibility of the U.S. state. Ding, ding, ding. Even if he's not a fascist, many argue that the Trump administration has been so damaging to workers, minorities, and the left that even a neoliberal Biden administration would be a step forward. This is not borne out by the facts. Trump has killed far fewer people in the Middle East than did Presidents George W. Bush or Barack Obama. He has deported a fraction of the undocumented migrants. Much is made of the stacking of the courts with conservatives, a shift that will undoubtedly have a long-term impact on U.S. society. 
This is nothing new. Republican legislatures in a number of states have been doing that for decades, undermining the rights of workers, women, LGBTI, and others in the process. And this is me. You should also mention that the Democrats have been complicit in moving the courts to the right. A piece by Stephen Shalom recently published at Tempest magazine puts forward a more systematic defense of voting for Biden, arguing that the partisan makeup of state institutions has a significant bearing on the lived experiences of those over which they govern, and that it is therefore preferable to have a lesser evil against which to organize. The piece champions Biden, Hillary Clinton, Obama, and Al Gore against their Republican rivals, but the obvious conclusion is that socialists in the U.S. should support Democrats across the board. For if it is better to have a lesser evil president, then surely it is better to have a lesser evil mayor, governor, district attorney, sheriff, and so on. By the same logic, you could argue that the left should intervene into the Republican primaries to prevent another Trump from emerging victorious. Is Joe Biden really that different from Jeb Bush? But even without reaching that absurd endpoint of Shalom's argument, there are substantial problems with his article. The first is his tendency to put a positive gloss on Democratic Party policies. Yes, Biden opposes socialism and our radical agenda, he writes, but he doesn't oppose our defense of DACA, a program that defers the deportation of people who came to the U.S. as undocumented minors, or our rejection of leaving the Paris Climate Agreement, the Iran deal, and nuclear arms control agreements, or our opposition to Homeland Security forces in Portland, or our call for COVID to be addressed with science, or our battle to protect reproductive rights and LGBTQ plus rights, etc., etc. This is me again. If you've been watching this show, you've probably got a good rebuttal to all of these silly arguments. Back to the story. To hold up Obama's policies in this way is ludicrous. He was responsible for the largest buildup of nuclear weapons in decades, and he deported a record-breaking 3.2 million undocumented migrants. Elsewhere in the piece, Shalom suggests that socialists should vote to elect Biden because there is little time to avert climate disaster, yet Biden has refused to commit to concrete measures that would curb the use of fossil fuels. A more fundamental point Shalom asserts is that Democratic officeholders are more responsive to social movements than the Republicans. As evidence, he points to the civil rights legislation passed by the Kennedy and Johnson administrations in the 1960s and the New Deal reforms of the 1930s. In response, you could point to Obama's violent repression of climate and indigenous activists trying to stop the construction of the Dakota Access Pipeline or his defense of the police in the face of the first Black Lives Matter movement. You could also explore the long history of democratic governance, indeed black democratic governance in U.S. cities, which has done little to address class and racial inequalities. You also could, dear viewers and listeners, bring up his quashing of the Occupy movement in over 50 cities. But the real debate is not whether Democrats are in every instance exactly as reactionary as Republicans. Democrats have a basic electoral interest in staking out a more progressive image for themselves, reflecting in a distorted way the grievances of their poorer and more racially diverse constituencies. It's all lip service. It is also no surprise that reforming Democrats have been elected to office at times when the left has been relatively strong and the demands for change widespread. 
This is a natural dynamic in liberal democratic capitalism, reinforcing the myth that demands for justice and change can be met within the system by electoral means. The real debate is whether socialists should reduce themselves to cheerleaders of the more competent and enlightened spokespeople for big business. And here is the crux of the matter, dear viewers and listeners. Any real effort to get out the vote necessarily entails exaggerating Trump's strength and minimizing Biden's conservatism. Hence, the proliferation of pieces like Shalom's that downplay the crimes of previous Democratic and even Republican presidents. It also explains recent pieces by Bhaskar Sunkara in The Guardian and Branko Marsetic in Jacobin, which cynically advised the neoliberal Biden on how to wring votes from distrustful millennials, making a mockery of the democratic socialists of America's formal position of refusing to endorse Biden. What emerges from these articles and arguments is a profound sense of defeat and demoralization on the U.S. left. They have largely abandoned the goal of social transformation and have chosen to prettify the neoliberal pig. This is me again. It just dawned on me that the other article from the red flag was yesterday, not the day before yesterday. The day before yesterday was a debate of sorts between Keaton Weiss and me about this very topic. On my side of the argument, I said in effect that we've been prettifying the neoliberal pig by endorsing Hell, not endorsing, by refusing to vote shame anyone who votes for the neoliberal pig. Back to the story. Socialists should not accept the lowering of our political horizons in this way. We currently face enormous global economic and health crises, the growing likelihood of imperial conflict between major powers, and the terrifying prospect of climate change. Nothing short of a fundamental transformation of the entire system can resolve these issues. Voting for neoliberals won't lead to meaningful victories on any of these fronts, nor will a Biden victory save us from the real dangers posed by the far right, which grew substantially during Obama's smooth-talking neoliberal presidency. That's why, Keaton, we don't have time to wait for movement for a people's party. In my crystal ball, they're going to turn out just as neoliberal as the current DNC is. We don't have the moral conviction to stop them from becoming what we already have. To conclude the story, Marxists have a different approach to fighting the nihilistic bigotry of fascism and the far right. At its core, this requires mass movements that can popularize an alternative political ethic based on working class solidarity and anti-racism and achieve radical transformation of society in the process. That starts by refusing to accept that politics is a choice between two sides of a fundamentally reactionary ruling class. And we'll end with some pithy wisdom nuggets from Caitlin Johnstone. Nothing will fundamentally change, notes from the edge of the narrative matrix. A propaganda machine that can make people worry about foreign governments while their own government is destroying lives in their own country and all over the world is a propaganda machine that can make people believe anything. Americans are hurt by their own government infinitely more than they are hurt by Russia, China, and Iran. People around the world are hurt by the U.S. government far more than Americans are hurt by their own government. Stop worrying about foreigners, America. It serves only the powerful. Joe Biden, nothing will fundamentally change. Liberals, this is the most important election of all time.
The U.S. government has killed millions and displaced tens of millions just since 9-11, babbling about how this election has unique importance because the current president will take America down a dark road is going to fall on a lot of deaf ears around the world. It's so dumb how Americans tell me not to talk about the U.S. election. I literally write about what's in the news for a living. I'm not going to suddenly stop criticizing the two-headed one-party system of the most powerful government on earth just because there's another pretend election in the works. This is what I do. Deal with it. U.S. foreign policy is far more important than U.S. domestic policy. It affects far more people, far more severely, and elite manipulators pour far more energy into maintaining the status quo on foreign policy than on domestic policy. Yet, the presidential race practically ignores it. There's a reason for this, and it ain't pretty. It sure is a mighty strange coincidence how U.S. democracy keeps getting attacked by nations it just so happens to want to target, and it's always in ways that are completely invisible to the public, and the evidence for the attacks is always classified. I mean, there are all sorts of ways that a country can be attacked, but the only ways the country that is literally always at war ever gets attacked is in ways that nobody can see, and we just have to take the word of the same government agencies that are responsible for the wars. Mighty, mighty strange, I say. We are in the middle of a slow-motion third world war between the U.S. Empire and the remaining nations which have resisted its attempts to absorb them. Propaganda is used to move this world war along. Point one. We are in the middle of a slow-motion third world war between the U.S. Empire and the remaining nations which have resisted its attempts to absorb them. Point two, propaganda is used to move this world war along. Point three, points one and two explain all these U.S. election meddling narratives. To be clear, any nation in the world would be fully justified in interfering in U.S. elections since the U.S. is by far the very worst offender in foreign election meddling. You don't get to normalize something by doing it constantly and then say it's wrong. And that's just election interference. It says nothing of invasions, coups, proxy wars, and other regime change operations the U.S. wages. You can't do these things and then say it's wrong to interfere in U.S. democracy. It isn't wrong. What's good for the goose is good for the gander. The U.S. uses its military, economic, and cultural might to bully and manipulate the entire world to the point where people in many nations are affected by U.S. politics more than Americans themselves are. It's not valid to interfere like that and then say others can't reciprocate. None of this is to concede that any of these nations actually are interfering in the U.S. election. The U.S. government lies about these things constantly and should never be taken on faith about them. But if they did interfere, it would be perfectly legitimate for them to do so. Believing something because everyone else believes it is stupid. Believing something because everyone else believes it in an information ecosystem that's controlled by powerful sociopaths is insane. If war propaganda stopped working and people realized what the imperial war machine is actually doing, it would immediately become impossible for the military to recruit. I joined the army, ma. You mean you're going to kill kids for money? How am I supposed to tell people that? Rags to riches stories of people clawing their way to the top from nothing are just the modern day equivalent of fairy tales about peasants discovering they're actually royalty. 
wildly improbable fantasies to let the commoners imagine the system could one day work for them too. You are not free if you are not mentally free. A truly sovereign human has liberated their mind from all delusions. Propaganda-generated delusions, culture-generated delusions, ego-generated delusions.